Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two in our series about healing waters, the belief held by many people throughout history that you could heal your body from illness and restore your health by bathing or by immersing yourself, sometimes just in hot or cold waters, sometimes in the waters of a special spring or location. Now, in the last episode, we uh, discussed the prehistoric origins of bathing, as well as uh, some evidence of ideas that became attached to bathing in the ancient world. For example, uh, ritual and uh, religious ideas about purity. You can see this in the ritual bathing by priests in ancient Egypt or as uh, or uh, ritual washing and bathing procedures outlined in, in the Bible. And then also the, the segue into the belief that became especially popular among the physicians of ancient Greece and Rome that you could cure diseases by immersing the body in hot or cold water often, though not always, connected to explanations based on the theory of the four humors. In today's episode, I wanted to kick things off by returning to talk about a few more aspects of a paper we discussed in the previous episode. This was the paper Water and Spas in the Classical World in the journal Medical History, uh, 1990, by Ralph Jackson, who was at the time uh, a scholar working for the Department of Prehistoric and Romano-British Antiquities at the British Museum in London. Now, as this paper addresses not only beliefs about the healing powers of bathing in water, but also of specific dedicated spa locations, I got interested in the origins of the English word spa. And it seems to me that the most commonly accepted etymology uh, of the word today is that spa is derived from the name of a particular curative mineral spring resort in eastern Belgium, which is called spa. So spa, the common noun, derives from spa, the proper noun, the name of the place, uh, which, by the way, is a city that still exists today. You can go to spa, Belgium. Uh, and uh, I saw on their Wikipedia page that one of the violinists on the Titanic was from spa, Belgium. Uh, hmm. But uh, the proper noun seems in turn derived from a common noun in the Walloon language, which is a Romance language spoken in eastern Belgium, and the original noun there would have been uh, espa, meaning a fountain, or perhaps also referring to a spring. Now, another thing we talked about in the previous episode was a, a number of names for healing by immersion in water and related practices. Uh, so you have the idea of balneotherapy, that is uh, healing by bathing, often in mineral springs. Hydrotherapy, a more general term referring to all kinds of water-based treatments for disease. Uh, and uh, I wanted to add to that another one that is mentioned in this paper. This is a, a phrase taken from what uh, the uh, Caesar Augustus did 
did when he was practicing some balneotherapy. He 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 did a practice called taking the waters. Uh, so in most cases, that seems to refer to yeah, just immersion, like bathing in waters, but also maybe some in some cases drinking the waters. And so I like that because it it sounds kind of like you're taking the waters, almost like you take a pill. But it also makes me think of the competitive aspect referenced by Pliny the Elder when he talks about people bragging about how much of the thermal springs they can take either like you know i can soak in this way too long i can soak in there so long and then also by allegedly drinking so much from the sulfurous springs that uh that you could no longer see their jewelry because their skin would close over their rings sounds like an exaggeration to me or at least i hope yeah and i've seen this pop up with various springs we've been looking at in our research where there will be traditions of bathing or soaking in the waters but also of drinking the waters uh, so it seems like these two are easily confused. What's good enough for the epidermis is good enough for uh, the digestive tract, I guess. Uh, yeah, it invites kind of gross questions like, in what order do you do those two things? Well, I mean, these are the, the sorts of questions one always has to ask about one's water supply, I guess. Well, I guess in the sense that, yes, every glass of water you drink contains water that, you know, was was poop and pee and everything else. The water cycle just continues around the world. But at least we uh, we hope today that water goes through some kind of purification process before you can drink it. I'm just imagining, I don't know, people soaking in sulfur springs and then just uh, scooping that right up on. and it... <laughs> Like a child in a bathtub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You have that one to look forward to as well. Don't drink oh, the bathwater. Uh, see how many times you get to say that. Um, uh, real quick, though, I was thinking about this. Uh, you know, I think a, a lot of this, uh, what we're talking about here, it kind of comes down to a few different realities uh, that, that are worth pointing out. One, we need water. And two, sources of water in the world are not all equal. There are mm -hmm. better sources than others. And a lot of the human experience has, has, uh, has, has, has had to do with trying to figure out what are the best sources. And, and so a lot of this you could maybe even look at as just kind of like a human overcomplication of that basic scenario. Like, I want the best water for me, the water that's not going to make me sick, the water that's going to ensure my continued life. And then we kind of build up everything on top of that. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. And this brings us back to the next thing from this paper I wanted to talk about, which is uh, when when we discussed uh, Jackson last time, we were talking about more general ancient Greek and Roman beliefs about the healing powers of bathing. Uh, but I mentioned there were also beliefs about the medicinal virtues of specific water sources, either for bathing or drinking or sometimes both. And Jackson lists a number of examples of this. And of course, uh, Pliny talked about specific waters in the sense of waters with specific properties. So maybe a sulfur springs versus alum springs and the different uh, ailments that those could address. But here you can actually get into specific localities. So uh, a few mentioned in, in Jackson's paper. One is the, uh, the Aqui Cutilii which is a mineral spring uh, northeast of the city of Rome. Uh, both Pliny and Celsus mention the, the cold waters of the spring as having the power to cure stomach disorders in particular. Uh, Jackson also mentions the sulfur springs of Aqui Abuli. This is near the town of Tivoli, also northeast of Rome. And Jackson writes, quote, described by Vitruvius, Strabo, and Marshall, recommended by Pliny for the healing of wounds and frequented by Augustus when he was troubled with rheumatism. Uh, but one of the most famous locations in the ancient Roman world uh, for bathing was uh, the facilities in the city of Bayi, which is near Naples, uh, famous for its baths fed by hot springs. And uh, Jackson writes, quote, Celsus recommended the sulfurous sweat baths in the myrtle groves above Bay. Strabo characterized the place by its hot springs that were, quote, suited both to the taste of the fastidious and to the cure of disease. And Pliny believed that, quote, nowhere is water more bountiful than in the Bay of Bayi or with more variety of relief, uh, meaning relief from disease. Uh, however, uh, Bayi and its hot baths uh, interestingly combined multiple reputations. So it was a place of healing from disease, but it also had a reputation as sort of a vice magnet or a party town. So imagine what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but for ancient Rome. 
which was already had, you know, sort of a kind of baseline vagasiness to it. Mm. You get uh, you get hints of this reputation in, in the writings of ancient authors. For example, Marshall uh, described a story of a, a virtuous woman who went to Bayi, and while she was there, she, you know, she hung out in the baths and then ended up deciding to leave her husband for a youth that she met there. And Marshall writes, quote, she arrived a Penelope and departed a Helen. <laughs> which is very judgy, but uh, gives you gives you an idea of what they thought. Yeah, and you know, and this strikes to to something that's kind of key to the the, the overall history of uh, certainly uh, baths and spas in European history. Like that, at times they become morally suspect, and that can of course lead to the, the downfall of various uh, bath and spa cultures in different areas. Sure. Um, and of course, uh, it was also a place, this is another aspect of the kind of the Vegas quality of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a place of opulence and extravagance for the rich, hosting private villas of emperors, uh, fancy spa facilities that had a lot of amenities. Jackson writes, quote, Nevertheless, a vast sector of baths, imposing buildings to enclose the hot springs and sulfurous vapors, grandiose rooms and extensive loggias and porticos have all been identified in the multi-level complex terraced into the volcanic slope above the Bay and Gulf. And the paper goes on to describe a number of sort of individual buildings here, one misleadingly named the Temple of Mercury, uh, misleading because it appears to not actually have been a temple, uh, Mm -hmm. but a place for soaking in hot spa waters. And this was this gigantic rotunda uh, that was, again, built uh, up on up on the uh, the volcanic slope. And it had these big windows to let light in from the top, but also to ventilate the sulfurous fumes. And it was said to, in some ways, resemble the design of Hadrian's Pantheon. Um, another interesting thing about the uh, the area of Bayi is that there there have been found uh, artifacts from the time, which are glass bottles that have engravings on them that are supposed to depict the the this area, the region of Bayi. Uh, like there was uh, one example cited in the paper and included on a plate that has all these engravings on the glass uh, that is described as a, quote, bulbous glass bottle that was found in North Africa. And uh, it it has, like, these drawings that are supposed to represent this area near Naples. And it's thought that maybe these were glass bottles where the water from Bayi was bottled so people could take it away as a souvenir. And I don't know, maybe just hang on to it or drink it later or something. Huh, that's that's fascinating. And, of course, we still see that today with various... um, waters that even if they're not considered sacred and in many cases they are still considered sacred uh, it, at the very least it's uh it's it's a, a, a some sort of a, a curio you take home with you some sort of a, a keepsake of a trip yeah uh th- now though most were not as luxurious as the facilities of bay which were for 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 the rich and powerful uh many regions of the roman empire had their own spa facilities even kind of far-flung regions that were far away from the imperial center jackson mentions especially regions where the locals practiced celtic religions so this would have included parts of gaul which is uh, sort of modern day france and germany uh, because water deities in Celtic mythology held a special importance. And this also brings up an association between the development of Roman baths or spas and the presence of the Roman military in places far away from uh, from Rome itself, from, from the imperial core. When, when the legion moved in, this would often lead to the development of a spa resort at a natural thermal spring. Uh, and a spa would become a place for wounded soldiers to heal or a place for uh, recreation and sort of maintenance of good health among the ranks. Hmm. And Jackson mentions that, so, you know, the Romans come in, their military comes in and they, they build a spa. The, this was not done out of a sense of kind heartedness to the locals. Like, look, look what we're doing for you. It was out of self-interest because it was for the Roman troops. Hmm. Or at least for their benefit, even if it was also open to locals. But certainly it it does speak to the value that uh, the Romans placed on this spa culture. Yes, and it's also interesting how that cultural importance uh, means it gets sort of wrapped up in religious ideas as well, because Jackson writes that 
under Roman rule uh, in, in one of these areas of the empire, uh, you build a spa and a deity of the local religion would usually be conflated with a Greco-Roman deity that had similar powers or patronage. And thus you'd get situations like you had in the German city of Aachen, where the local Celtic deity Granus was combined with the Greco-Roman figure of Apollo the Healer, and thus uh, the composite cult figure Apollo Granus is born and rules over the local hot springs, the spa there. Hmm. And this is interesting because it helps give you a sense of, of uh, on the ground how these spas were used. Jackson includes an image from an early 2nd century votive altar found near Aachen appearing to depict Apollo Granus here, this composite figure of the, uh, the, uh, the Greco-Roman and the Celtic deity. And uh, in describing it, Jackson writes, quote, The enthroned god holds a lyre and a plectrum— so musical instruments, and carries his bow and quiver of arrows over his right shoulder. An inscription records that the altar was dedicated in fulfillment of a vow by L. Latinius Maser, a native of Verona and senior officer or praefectus castrorum of the Ninth Legion, who may have been restored to health at the spa. So you get healed at the spa, you, that may mean that uh, you have to now make a donation there. Maybe you made a vow to the to the local deity and said, like, okay, if these waters heal my wound or heal my sickness, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be the sponsor of this altar or something. Hmm. Now, this paper also gets into another uh, major spa location, a very historically important and interesting one at uh, Bath in in England. But I think I'm going to save that one for the next episode in the series because that brings up its own uh, fascinating mysteries and histories. So we'll come back to Bath. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. Uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. 
And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Now, for the next example we're going to look at here, uh, I wanted to to hit on something from Irish tradition, uh, in part because uh, the, the week this episode is coming out is the week of St. Patrick's Day. And uh, I like to, to spend my research time a little bit on something uh, Ireland-related. And I found a great example in the waters of Leek Slip Spa. Now, you'll find numerous thermal springs in Ireland, and, uh, and, and uh, you also find this tradition of, of healing wells and holy wells that you also see throughout England. Um, you know, you'll find sacred wells in Ireland as well. Different wells and different springs are attributed different healing properties for different maladies. And you'll also find them connected to such figures as St. Patrick, but also to older gods and goddesses of Irish tradition. But at any rate, balneotherapeutic medicine in Ireland was especially big in the 17th, 18th, and at least the early 19th centuries. Yes, and this sort of correlates with how it seems that after the Roman, so, uh, you know, Greco-Roman world, uh, medical treatments involving bathing or immersion were very popular. And it seems that kind of declined later in the Roman Empire and was, again, uh, comparatively rare through the early Middle Ages. But then there was sort of a resurgence in interest in bath culture and in medicine involving bathing in the late Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And then there was another big uh, uh, rush for it, uh, I think, maybe in the uh, 18th and 19th century. Yeah, so a lot of this, you see the fads come and go, right? Um, now, specifically with Leek Slip here, uh, this is located near the town of Leek Slip in northeast Ireland. It's spelled L-E-I-X-L-I-P. Uh, and I understand that this area in general is a major Irish water source, uh, or at least there are various videos online about the importance um, of, uh, of the various uh, uh, you know, water uh, operations located in this region. This particular spa, however, was apparently, uh, it's not one that has like a deep history in and of itself, or at least that doesn't seem to be the case based on the research I was looking at. Apparently, the spa was uncovered in 1793 by workmen digging the Royal Canal. They discovered the spring, and then as they were developing everything, they, they ended up building it out into kind of a Romanesque spa. And it was apparently quite popular for a good run there. Uh, but then it fell out of use during the early 19th century. And uh, based on what I was reading, it was like for a while, it was just kind of in, in ruins. Um, and uh, yeah, I think this probably lines up with just sort of a, that ge- general dip in the popularity of balneotherapeutic medicine. Now, when you initially start reading about the Leak Slip Spa, you know, it, it basically sounds like any other spa situation you might be looking at. You know, sulfurous waters that were thought to have healing properties, Romanesque baths catering to folks in search of such healing. But what really caught my attention is that in this particular story, anyway, there is also a worm. A worm? Yes. <laughs> So uh, as we move into this, I'd like to turn to the writings of Caesar Otway, who lived 1780 through 1842. Uh, He talks about this in his 1839 book, A Tour in Connet, and he describes Leek Slip Spa as follows. And I have to warn, this is all just part of a gigantic run-on sentence that I guess was just the style in those days. Um, All right, please. I don't know if I can summon the energy to to give it proper justice. I have faith. Otway writes, It is not only a beautiful but an extraordinary spring, for if you believe all the neighbors, not a fish or frog will live in its waters. And though there be a flocculent, rusty-colored, ochreous matter constantly rising to the surface of the well, exactly similar to that which is found in springs strongly impregnated with iron, yet no test, either gallic acid or prussiate of potash, can identify any iron. But in the center of this flocculent matter is found a very red little worm, about half an inch long, which all those who who have still faith in the celebrity of the well say is the sovereignest remedy alive for a sore leg. 
nay more, let anyone who has drank overnight from 15 to 20 tumblers of punch and whose head is so hot that it makes the water fizz into which it is plunged, let him, I say, but take a quart or two of the water of this spring on the following morning and he will lose all his whiskey fever and walk home as cool as a cucumber. I assure you, gentle reader, I have seen Sundry making the experiment and I actually saw them afterwards sober. Whoa, I want to read the rest of this guy's book. (laughs) Yeah, like I say, it has a great energy to it. So to refresh, Otway is telling us that nothing else lives in these waters, but they seem like iron-infused waters, despite negative testing, and that flocculation occurs, creating a kind of wool-like coagulation on top of the water in which you'll find tiny red worms. These waters will cure you of your sore leg or your punch-inflicted hangover, either (laughs) way. That is a great story. And it, this did make me look up flocculent. Okay, so flocculent means kind of like coagulant. It means making particles clump together. Mm-hmm. Didn't, a new word for the vocab. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's like sometimes I guess you see it with um, like the kind of foaminess on top of uh, of uh, like flowing waters where they kind of like get um, uh, kind of dead-ended in a particular part of the stream, that kind of thing. Or at least that's what I'm picturing in my head. Okay, but when he's talking about the worm, I can't tell, does he mean literally a worm, like a biological organism, a worm? Or does he mean like a worm-like clump of something? He appears to mean an actual worm because I found other plenty of other references to it. Uh, These details uh, that I'm about to read are from a 2021 source, Survey of the Heritage of Holy Wells in County Kildare by Laughlin et al. for Ireland's Archaeology Plan Heritage Solutions. Quote, A small worm lived in the scum on the top of the pond, and people used to put it between two pieces of cloth and rub it to their eyes as a cure for weak eyes. Uh Some people left the pieces of cloth on the briars beside the well, but others didn't, as there was no saint associated with the well. (laughs) (laughs) So what, there's no saint there to to scold you into leaving the pieces of cloth on the briars beside the well, so you would just, what, steal the cloth? I, I'm i less sure about what they're getting at with that, but okay. I, it's hard for me to get past the idea that, okay, not only, yes, are there tiny red worms in these thermal springs, but you also are going to essentially squeeze them into your eyeballs uh, or something like that, something way too close to that uh, to, to, uh, to initially sit well with me. So you're what you're squeezing out the little red worm juice into your eyes and that cures their weakness? I guess. And it's maybe going through the cloth a little bit. Um, I, I couldn't find much in the way of other references to that particular process. But still, it, it seems to be the case that there are there are multiple accounts of the red worms here. So setting aside any actual curative effects of the worms, uh, you know, what might they be? Obviously, to live in such an environment, you need some matter of thermophile or extremophile organism. And we know that there are plenty of examples of those sorts of organisms, creatures that are able to thrive in heated waters, for example. But uh, I was looking around and there, there are plenty of accounts of red worms and also things described as worms living in thermal spring environments around the world with some certainly endemic to particular springs or immediate environments and others more sort of widespread. For example, C.T. Brews in Animal Life in Hot Springs, published in 1927 in the Quarterly Review of Biology, writes of the bloodworms um, that are found in particular waters, understood, uh, at least by this author, to be the larval form of various midges and that when, while they might occur in various waters, the author described having encountered them in a shallow thermal pool at Yellowstone National Park. Oh, okay. So it may, so this so-called worm may have not been permanently a worm, but one of the stages of life of another organism, maybe the larval form of like a, uh, of a type of fly. Exactly. Yeah. And you can look up images of this. Like the, the, these are well documented, but they're, yeah, they're not true worms. They have legs. They're, they're, they're a larva. Now, they're, but still, that doesn't solve everything because there are also sulfur cave worms to consider. Uh, there was a recent study of these creatures at Sulfur Cave in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Thousands of these worms live uh, in, in the waters there. And Aaron Scott et al. for NPR described them as follows in September of 2022. 
Quote, the worm blobs look like dark red sea anemones wriggling in the stream bed. The individual worms are around one inch long, thin as pencil lead, and live off the bacteria in the cave, which in turn lives off the sulfur. Mm. See, that's already checking off some boxes there. Yeah, yeah. Now, the worms in this case, dubbed uh, Limnodrillus sulfurensis, seem endemic to this particular thermal spring. But uh, one of its relatives, Limnodrillus hoffmeisteri, is also red in color and uh, is very tough, able to live in polluted waters that other organisms can't handle. And it's very widespread and is found in Ireland. Oh, okay. So another candidate. Right, right. Now, interestingly, in either case, the red coloration of the worm or larva is due to uh, hemoglobin molecules in the organism. Uh, both midge larvae and, uh, and the worms in question here are sometimes called bloodworms. Uh, they're, they're both referred to as bloodworms. And I found an article about this uh, with the Missouri Department of Conservation pointing out, oh, hey, if you're talking about bloodworms, you might be talking about a larva. You might be talking about a, a particular type of worm. Both good for weak eyes. <laughs> in either case, though, I would say don't go finding tiny red worms or larvae and squeezing them into your eyeballs. Um, I looked around to try to find any details on folk remedies or folk medicine traditions that involved um, squeezing red worms into your eyes and or in, in any way really using them medicinally. And I, I could not find anything. Mm. Uh, granted, that's exactly the sort of thing that in, in some cases may be lost to history, though. Yeah, I think there are tons of folk remedies I th that uh, never or only barely make it into print. Yeah. Now, I did run across one article concerning mysterious cattle diseases, kind of a throwback to our Halloween episodes. Oh, I had to think for a second. But yes, we uh, in past October, we did uh, a couple of uh, different uh, livestock malady <laughs> episode, uh, series. We did the, the stuff on the cattle mutilation panic of the 1970s and on the traditional uh, beliefs about elf shot, where people thought that uh, that uh, the sort of subtle folk were using spiritual weapons to to harm their uh, their livestock. Yeah, I found a, uh, in this case, it was an article from 1914 titled The Cattle Disease Called Canog and Its Traditional Cure by Amulets and Charms. Uh, and this was by William F. D. Vismus Kane, published in the Journal of the Royal Society of Antiquaries of Ireland, 1914. So the author here notes that the, the actual symptoms of the disease vary. And it's basically one of these situations where you have kind of a catch-all term that's referring to probably different ailments in different species. And at least in some cases, it was attributed to some sort of a biting insect, but also to the consumption of some sort of worm. Mm. Now, the worm that is uh, blamed, it seems like accounts vary. There's like one account saying it's some sort of a black worm, which obviously isn't what we're talking about here. But there's at least some cases where they refer to a tiny red worm as being a potential cause of the ailment. And so the author here is citing one of these, uh, these, these uh, accounts. Uh, there's a discussion of, quote, a very small worm as red as scarlet and found in the height of summer and never found at the time of the year when the canog is seen. Um, the cited source indicates that the scarlet worm does not cause canog. Canog, he stresses, is treated via bloodletting, <laughs> but the illness caused by ingesting the scarlet worm is said to cause the head to swell, and then you cure it by reaching inside the cow's mouth and squeezing or popping a bladder that has grown at the root of the tongue. Hmm. And I was, I was just kind of nodding my head to this. I was like, okay, I guess that's a thing that happens. But the, the author here cites a Professor Mason of Dublin, Quote, I think the scarlet tiny worm of the writer is with little doubt the well-known bloodworm frequent in shallow water in summer and is the larva of the Chironomus, a kind of crane fly, a per perfectly innocuous animal. Um, and then Mason seems to just dismiss this bladder bursting cure as a quack cure, similar to one that was done by quack doctors that would cure an animal by bursting internal bladders on the spine. Ooh. So some sort of, you know, some sort of like a fake healing technique. I don't know if this is a solid accusation that the professor is making or if there maybe there was some sort of folk remedy in play and some sort of like swelling on the back of the tongue. But uh, Professor Mason seems to be saying like, no, 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 that's just some quack trying to, uh, you know, cheat you out of a few coins by reaching down your cow's throat. 
So this might be more akin to uh, curing your cattle of elf shot by having them like eat fairy crabs and then poking them with a special knife or something. Yeah, it's kind of interesting to think about. Again, this paper, it it deals in part with the use of amulets to cure mysterious ailments. Uh, But there are other ways to, to supernaturally address a particular ailment. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, another note about the, the, the bloodworm midge larva here. Uh, they're consumed all the time by trout. Uh, so, mm. and, uh, and I believe you can actually get them as bait as well. So perhaps some of our anglers out there have some uh, experience with these bloodworms. Flocculent fly fishers, let us know. <laughs> yeah, and they're, they seem harmless. I think some people can have allergic reactions to them. I saw a 2013 paper about this. But I... Again, I wasn't able to turn up anything about their use in folk medicine or the use of uh, the other uh, type of organism that is sometimes referred to as a, as a blood worm having any kind of role in, in folk medicine. Hmm. So again, don't go squirting worms into your eyes. But I think it is fascinating because we have a situation here where, yeah, there's the, the more traditional sort of sulfur springs scenario going on. But then this added level of, oh, there's something about the things that live in the spring water. There's something about the organisms in it that have some reputed beneficial uh, health effect. Yeah, and I uh, certainly haven't read anything about that in the in like the ancient Roman context or anything. Yeah, but it did end up reminding me of another example of 
supposed therapeutic waters with organisms that live in them, in which, in, in, in cases where at least some traditions value the presence of the organisms themselves, which leads us to the world of fish. Mm. So, uh, and some of you may know exactly where this is going, uh, uh, but my earliest exposure to anything out there about this, about there being fish in therapeutic waters and the fish are the therapeutic part of, of the immersion experience. I mean, the most I think that it ever happened is I'd maybe been occasionally nibbled by a fish in a lake or at the beach. But uh, back in 2009, my wife and I visited Erawan National Park in Thailand and toured Erawan Falls. These are beautiful uh, waters. Uh, so basically you have just like a whole system of waterfalls with these uh, very clear pools in between them that have kind of like this blue uh, appearance, very beautiful. And there are fish in those pools. And you were encouraged to, you know, come up, dip your feet, take your shoes off, put, your, put get your get your feet in those waters. And then the fish will come up and nibble on the dead skin of your feet, which tickles. But in some cases, you're saying some people believe there to be health consequences of this kind of thing. Right, right. Uh, now, I don't know specifically about the, the Thai uh, scenario, if, there, um, if there's any kind of like traditional Thai medicinal uh, understanding of these fish. If memory serves the guides on this particular trip, they just made reference to it being a pedicure. Um, there, I don't remember there being any kind of medical uh, argument made for it. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I know this is probably ringing a bell with a number of people out there because um, there is this wider spread use of supposed fish pedicure uh, services where you got go to some sort of a pedicure business and you'll put your feet into a tank that has fish in it and the fish will eat the dead skin off of your feet. Once again, it seems like a thing that's uh, unusual and interesting enough that a lot of people, I bet, would do it just for the novel experience, even if it doesn't, you know, do much better than a pumice stone for getting dead skin off your foot. Yeah. Now, I, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what species of fish this was that uh, I encountered uh, in Thailand. Um, again, it was a while back and I didn't take notes uh, at the time. I'm not sure if they mentioned a specific species. Uh, but um, I see some references online. These are like not papers or anything, but just like uh, reviews and so forth, referring to it being a gara rufa uh, or gara rufa, uh, I guess more uh, more accurately. Um and this is a particular, this is the fish that is often encountered in these supposed fish pedicure uh, services uh, that you'll encounter some places. They're illegal in some places, and I'm not recommending you go out and try them. Uh, and we'll come, we'll come back to, to why in a, in a minute here. But um, yeah, I saw some references to it being this Gara Rufa, uh, but those are, at least I understand, to be native to Western Asia. And I'm not sure if this could be a situation where they could potentially even be invasive there because I was reading on the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, website that they're rated as like a low, uncertain invasive risk. So, yeah, I'm not sure if this could even conceivably be the same species. Hmm. But research indicates that there definitely are other Gara species and there are Gara species in Thailand. Um, There are at least three there's a one that's called Gara uh, fluviatilis, and this seems to reside in the same general area uh, that I'm talking about here. So if I if I had to just guess at, at all of this, and ultimately all this is would be a guess based on, on some of the things I was reading, I would say maybe it's that species, but I just don't know for sure. Mm-hmm. But the Gara rufa has certainly traveled around the globe via the fish pedicure industry. And I know, I know a number of you have probably caught wind of this one way or another. The idea being that you, you go to, this business, to a business, you immerse your feet into a tank full of these fish, and they nibble away at the dead skin on your feet, re- like revealing uh, like, um, you know, brighter, more, more vibrant skin. I don't know why I thought you were going to say the face of God. <laughs> uh, you know, it's we talk many, uh, we've spoken many times on the show about situations where there's some sort of like a, especially in oceanic environments, where there's some sort of a grooming species that uh, that, that helps out another animal. I mean, most recently we talked about the the whale lice on uh, on whales and how they are essentially doing the same thing. Uh, but mm-hmm. to be clear, when we're talking about uh, about it being a pedicure service that you're encountering, like in a tank under a table. Uh, that is not a natural environment scenario. Uh, this is a very augmented scenario, and there are you know, various issues to be had with it. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. On one hand, potential sanitation concerns, but then also ethical concerns as well uh, concerning the fish. Uh, And as a result, yeah, it's banned in many places. Mm. So, yes, there are other gara fish, but the gara rufa is native to the Middle East, particularly parts of Jordan, Syria, and Turkey. And in the wild, they feed on um, uh, detritus, algae, and tiny animals. Uh, But in the absence of better food sources, they will feed on dead skin. Uh, so the alleged origin of the fish pedicure is most in most of, of the literature we're looking at is the Kangal Hot Spring in Turkey. Uh, now, again, we're talking about hot springs in an area long known to human beings. So it's likely that these springs were known and utilized for all the reasons humans have visited thermal springs throughout uh, their history. And uh, while the fish were certainly here, uh, they were certainly present in this location, it seems. Things have changed in the last 100 years or so, 100 years plus. Mm. So there's a 2007 Scientific American paper. This is one I think you turned up uh, and sent me, Joe, uh, titled Fish That Go Skin Deep. And I guess it's not so much an article. It's kind of a short bit. It was just a short little snippet article, but it had a very interesting detail in it. Yes. Yeah. It adds a little bit of historical uh, detail that uh, I was I was having trouble finding in uh, in other studies. Uh, quote, these fish have acquired a taste for humans, largely because they have little choice. The spring is too hot to sustain enough algae and plankton to feed them all. In the past, the fish were able to move between the spring and a creek that runs nearby. But after learning of a story about a local shepherd whose wounded leg healed after being dipped into the spring in 1917, builders walled off the spring from the creek in the 1950s to preserve a captive school. A Turkish family has now constructed a hotel, villas, and a playground and markets the resort to psoriasis patients. Now, I came across this short Siam article uh, because we were looking at papers that seem to be focused on the question of uh, is this treatment actually effective or not for psoriasis? It seems obviously this is a, a form of alternative medicine, so uh, I, I don't know if I have an opinion or not on on whether there's any evidence this is actually useful for psoriasis. I guess I would have my doubts. Uh, but the fascinating thing to me was the thing about like enclosing this fish population that mm-hmm. used to go back and forth, but apparently now is stuck in the pool. Yes, and uh, and would not would would otherwise maybe not eat dead skin off of people's feet, but uh, given that it is an altered environment, uh, they are encouraged to do so due to the lack of other food sources. Mm. Still, I think the basic scenario here, what it reveals about the the natural environment that has been augmented, this does kind of line up with the with the Thailand scenario, where again in that Thailand scenario you had various clear pools that were connected by multiple cascading waterfalls, so sort of these kind of like uh, traps of of small uh, aquatic habitats that are connected. Um, but uh, you can see why you might end up with a population of fish in a given pool uh, that are that are hungry, that um, have maybe exhausted uh, what they can eat and are then happy to check out anything that is introduced. Mm. So advocates of this treatment, sometimes called ichthyotherapy, um, they they tout it as either a general cosmetic uh, pedicure sort of procedure or as a treatment for skin ailments such as psoriasis. Again, we're not going to weigh in too much on uh, the, the the ups and downs of this. This this is getting into the the area of alternative medicine, but um, but certainly when you're dealing with the fish take environment version of it, there are some some definite um, reasons to stay clear of it. Anyway, in both of these cases, we have the the blood worms. We have these uh, these little fish that nibble at your toes. These are both situations where we have uh, spring waters that uh, that are noted uh, for their health benefits in part or in entirely due to the organisms that live in them, the animals that live in them. And I think it's at least, at least worth noting that thermal springs continue to be of interest to scientists because of potential extremophile organisms uh, that might live there that also might reveal some sort of unique antibiotic uh, discoveries, though mm. I don't think this is the sort of thing that ba- merely bathing in the waters would unlock for a person. Right. It would be more that like the organisms there are useful for research on antibiotics, not that like you're going to cure your diseases just by getting in the water. Yeah. Not that I don't think anybody's making those claims, but then again, it's the exact sort of claims that could end up being made about a given spring. Like 
bathe in the extremophile waters of extremophile springs, unlock the uh, unknown antibiotics uh, for your own well-being, that sort of thing. Well, the hot spring bloodworms and the hot spring fish, I, I did not uh, imagine this at all as an angle we would end up going down. But this has been fascinating. And our series on the healing waters will have to continue with at least one more episode, maybe a couple more next week. Uh, there's a lot more interesting stuff to talk about. Of course, with a lot of the alleged cures we've been talking about up up to this point, uh, pr- probably the majority of them, if there was an effect, it may have been a placebo effect. Uh, but there may actually be some cases where there's pretty good evidence evidence of uh, balneotherapy of various kinds, even in particular spring waters, having an actual direct mechanistic effect on healing certain illnesses. And uh, if that is the case, we're going we're gonna to talk about some examples of that next time. Yeah, so be, be sure to, uh, to join us for that discussion. Uh, there's more strange stuff in the healing waters. It'll be flocculent. <laughs> yes, yes. Don't drink the flocculent waters. Don't drink the bath water. Uh, all right. Well, uh, as we close out here, just want to remind everybody that our core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you'll find them on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we do Lister Mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short-form artifact or monster fact. And on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events... You'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.